Divergence, the podcast miniseries. Welcome back to the Divergence podcast. My name is R.L. Solberg, and I'll be your host for the historical journey that we're taking right now through the first three centuries of the Christian faith. You are joining us for episode number seven in our 11-part miniseries, in which we're examining Jewish-Christian relations in the early church. And this miniseries is actually a companion to my new book, Divergence, which just came out recently. Uh, You can learn more about that book at divergencebook.com. Of course, you you don't need to own that book in order to... uh, enjoy the podcast series, but I would highly recommend you buy a copy or maybe seven because a hundred percent of the profits are being donated to fight anti-Semitism. Uh, so I'm not making any money off the book and it's very interesting. If, you, if you're enjoying this podcast, I think you'll enjoy the book too. So you're joining us in the middle of our three-stage investigation. Uh, in stage one, we examined the New Testament and arrived at a, a baseline teaching about what the New Testament teaches us about how Christians should regard and treat their Jewish brothers and sisters and the Jewish faith. Uh, we're now in stage two, where we're going to begin looking through the early Christian writings, and then stage three, we're going to examine the Council of Nicaea, which happened in 325. So in the last episode, we just kind of set the stage for for stage two, our journey through these early writings. Uh, We talked about the historical context of these first three centuries. We talked about what the scholars call the parting of the ways between Judaism and Christianity. And then we took a, a brief overview of just the early writings. In this episode, we're going to look at one teaching, which is Marcionism, and one writing, which is just and Martyr's dialogue with Trifa. Both of those are going to really help to inform our investigation. Um, and then in upcoming episodes, we're going to look at even more early Christian writings. So things are going to get pretty interesting. So we'll begin with looking at the teaching called Marcionism, which of course is named after the uh, the man who came up with it, Marcion of Sinope. He was born in 85 and died around 160. He's the kind of guy who embodied the uh, mindset that our, a lot of our friends in the Hebrew Roots movement suggest all of the church held in the in the early centuries. Fortunately for us, a great deal is known about Marcion through the early writings. So he's he's really an excellent case study for us as we look at Jewish Christian relations in the early church. Now what Marcion taught was that the Bible the full Bible, Old and New Testaments, really refers to two different gods. So he had in the New Testament the bele- the benevolent God of love and mercy that was proclaimed by Jesus, right? And then in the Old Testament, he saw the the finite, imperfect, angry Jehovah of the Jews, he called them. In the year 144, Marcion wrote this piece called Antitheses, in which he outlined this contrast that he saw. He described the, the God of the Old Testament as a demiurge, which is which is a lesser God who created the physical universe. And he considered this God to be a harsh tribal God who was as severe and unmerciful as, as the law that he gave. And the Old Testament God, according to uh, Marcion, you know, he commanded us to love our neighbor, but hate our enemies. He taught vengeance, saying, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But Marcion argued that by contrast, the New Testament presents this, what he called a supreme God, who commands us to love our enemy and to turn the other cheek. Now, Marcion believed that the creator God of the Hebrew Bible, of the Tanakh, was righteous and just uh, in the sense of administering justice, right? He, he gave men what they deserved based on their actions. However, according to Marcion, this God wasn't the father of Jesus. 
Rather, he said that Christ descended from a previously unknown God that we find in the New Testament. So Marcion was teaching that Jesus materialized in human form at the start of his mission as a messenger of this, this good God. So in other words, the, the Old Testament God created the universe. The New Testament God was the author of salvation. And because of the stark contrast that Marcion saw between the Old and New Testaments uh, and the gods of each, he ended up concluding that Christianity was wholly and completely disconnected from Judaism. So, so he could only accept those parts of Scripture that corroborated his theology, right? So we look to our historian here, Everett Ferguson, in his book, Church History, he writes this, Marcion rejected the Old Testament as scripture for the church and issued a New Testament consisting of edited versions of the Gospel of Luke and 10 Pauline epistles, lacking the pastoral epistles. He omitted or changed verses often on a dogmatic basis. So we know that specifically Marcion edited Luke to remove any mention of the incarnation. Um, he also edited Paul's letters to avoid the idea that Jesus you know, had fulfilled the prophecies of the Hebrew scriptures, or even the parts that suggest that he, or teach that he participated in the work of creation. And because Marcion's superior New Testament God was previously unknown, Marcion just rejected the entire Jewish Bible as unconnected to anything doing with salvation. And since Christ, according to Marcion, was utterly unknown until he appeared on the scene, the Tanakh could not and did not, according to him, contain any actual prophecies of the true Messiah. So here we have the embodiment, again, of the conspiracy theorists and our friends in the Hebrew Roots Movement and others who practice that idea of Torahism, who claim that there was some sort of anti-Jewish sentiment towards the Jewish people in the early church that caused the church to kind of lose its way and veer off course in terms of its theology. So we have this presented to us. The question now is, okay, Marcion comes, with, comes up with this whole concept and he begins trying to sell that to the church. So how did the church fathers then meet Marcion's teachings? And it turns out they met his anti-Jewish theology with ferocious opposition. They, they rejected it outright as heresy. They wanted nothing to do with his divisive teachings, and Marcion was actually kicked out of the church. He was excommunicated. So the rejection of Marcion's heresy really underscored, as, as uh, Ferguson describes it, Christianity's, quote, realization that it could not surrender its Old Testament roots and what that entailed about the oneness of God and the goodness of his creation, close quote. And then we have a Jewish scholar, Alan Segal, in his book, Two Powers in Heaven, He's, he points out even that Marcion's, quote, canon of New Testament writings was dangerous, and the church required the Old Testament authority in order to foretell the coming of the Christian Messiah. So here in the second century, we really see this, and pardon the pun, come to Jesus moment for the church when they, when they have to really uh, double down on the fact that the Jewish roots of the Christian faith matter. They can't be they can't be edited out at all. Uh, Everett Ferguson, our favorite historian, says this. He tells a story about how Marcion was quite wealthy, and that earlier in his career that he, quote, went to Rome and gave the church a large sum of money. His teachings, however, were rejected in 144, and his money was returned to him. He proceeded to set up a rival church that in a few years was nearly as widespread as the great church. So Marcion ended up actually using his personal wealth, presumably including the, the donation that was returned by the church, to fund his own church movement. And unfortunately, 
His heresy lingered in one form or another for at least three centuries after he died, before it finally, thankfully, faded into obscurity. But during that period, Marcion's teachings were written against at great length. So most notable was, was the church father, Tertullian, who wrote a five-book commentary called Adversus Marcionum, against Marcion, which was published around 208. And about a century later, the Roman emperor Constantine, who we're going to meet in upcoming episodes, he actually ordered the Marcionites' meeting houses, their, essentially their churches, to be handed over to the Christian church. And he, even more than that, he banned the Marcionites from worshiping in public or in private. So what we see here is that the church fathers agreed that Marcion's anti-Jewish teachings should be allowed no place in Christian doctrine. In fact, it was their desire to respond to what Marcion was, was teaching, this heresy. They wanted to respond to those claims and set the record straight before that anti-Jewish heresy spread any further. That actually hastened the establishment of the Christian biblical canon. It was Marcion's heresy that really drove the church to begin that process of marking the boundaries of what would become the canon of the New Testament and, and Orthodox Christian teaching. Now, there's an additional element of Marcion's story that's really relevant to this relationship that we're looking at between Judaism and Christianity during this period. And some of you may have heard this story, but tradition holds that Marcion had asked Polycarp, another early church father, uh, to recognize him as a bishop. And Polycarp rejected him with the words, quote, I recognize you as the firstborn of Satan, which just goes to show how strongly opposed the church was to Marcion's anti-Jewish teachings. Well, what's interesting about that, though, is Alan Segal, the Jewish scholar, uh, he notes this, quote, the term firstborn of Satan has a Hebrew equivalent, which seems to have had a similar and contemporary use within Jewish exegesis as a term of reproach for someone who did not follow the accepted tradition of scriptural interpretation. Such common terminology between Jewish and Christian communities is important to us because it points to a relationship between them. So what's interesting here is Segal is pointing out that there was some interaction between Jewish and Christian teachers at the time, and it's very interesting to kind of work out where those borderlines, where those boundaries were. And in fact, Marcion's teaching represented as much a threat to Christianity as it did to Judaism. Segal says this as well, quote, If the rabbis were concerned with Marcionite theology, they might have been dependent on the church fathers for the defense against him. It's also possible that each community developed its defense against Marcion independently. And what Segal is pointing out here, and by the way, this is from his book, The Two Powers in Heaven. What he's pointing out is that there was some level of interdependency or, or interaction between the Jewish teachers and the Christian teachers. And Segal even goes further and demonstrates that Tertullian relied on rabbinic tradition, really. And at the same time, Tertullian's, he's using his refutation of Marcionism as an occasion not just to rebuke Marcion, but also to rebuke the anti-Christian teachings of Judaism. So in that same work, Adversus Marcionum, he wrote this, quote, it is now possible for the heretic to learn, and the Jew as well, what he ought to know already, the reason for the Jew's errors. And then he went on to say this, quote, Let the heretic now give up borrowing poison from the Jew, the asp, as they say, from the viper. Let him from now on belch forth the slime of his own particular devices as he maintains that Christ was a phantasm. Except that this opinion, too, will have had other inventors, those, so to speak, premature and abortive Marcionites, whom the Apostle John pronounced Antichrist, who denied that Christ was come in the flesh. 
So here we see Tertullian really taking on any belief system, whether it's Marcionism or Judaism or any other ism that sought to deny Christ. And it's really in this sense that this grand Marcionite controversy helped to serve as as a galvanizing force in early Christian theology, which really, I mean, if you look at it, that's sort of the benefit if we can call it a benefit of heretical claims, at least when we rightly receive them, that they obligate believers, Christians, theologians, to to re-examine their scriptural understandings and, and either reaffirm or adjust them as appropriate. And this was the case with Marcion. And as I mentioned, it was very much a galvanizing teaching around which the early church was able to sort of double down and really confirm that the Jewish roots of the Christian faith are imperative to what we believe and what we need to teach. There's a theologian, Augustus Strong, who wrote this, and I'll, and I'll close our discussion about Marcion with this, quote, If Marcion's view had prevailed, the Old Testament would have been lost to the Christian church. God's revelation would have been deprived of its proof from prophecy. Development from the past and divine conduct of Jewish history would have been denied. The love and mercy revealed in the New Testament would seem characteristic of a weak being who could not enforce law or inspire respect. A tree has as much breadth below the ground as there is above, so the Old Testament roots of God's revelation are as extensive and necessary as are its New Testament trunk and branches and leaves. Okay, so now let's move on to Justin Martyr and his, uh, his work called Dialogue with Trifo. Now, Christianity has always had an inherent tension in its relationship with Judaism, obviously. I mean, on the one hand, Christianity depends on the authority of the Hebrew Bible, which we just looked at. Um, and it also depends on the Jewish testimony to those texts to actually authenticate the New Testament and its claims about Christ. So they're intertwined. But on the other hand, Christianity's claims that it has fulfilled the Jewish prophecies also involve a rejection of Judaism, at least at the point where it failed to acknowledge Jesus as its Messiah. So in all the early writings that I reviewed, I think this tension uh, between Christianity and Judaism is the most evident here in Justin Martyr's Dialogue with Trifo, uh, which was written around the year 160. So who was Justin Martyr? Well, he was born in a Roman colony called Neapolis uh, in Samaria, although he wasn't Samaritan and he wasn't a Jew either. But he ended up becoming arguably the most influential Christian apologist of the second century. His writing, Dialogue with Trifo, is this intellectually impressive, very lengthy document. Uh, the English translation that I that I read from, it, it runs more than 69,000 words. So this is a huge undertaking, especially considering that it was written by hand. I'm always so impressed by these early Christian writers. Uh, they wrote it by hand. They wrote it from memory or looking at scrolls. They didn't have Bible software or Google or you know, BibleGateway.com, just amazing intellect that's represented among all the church fathers, but certainly in this document by Justin. So basically in this document, he's writing with three main issues in view, main topics. And one is the purpose and the meaning of the law or the Torah. Um, And the second one is the messianic claims about Jesus. And then he also deals with the identification of the true people of God, you know, whether it's Israel, whether it's the church, that sort of thing. So he works through these issues by way of a ambitious literary dialogue between himself and a Hellenized rabbi named Trifo, who was allegedly famous as one of the most learned Jews in the East. Now, 
Now, whether this work records an actual discussion is a matter of debate among scholars, but either way, I mean, Justin's remarkable knowledge of the Jews, their objections to Christianity, their Jewish scriptures, the Jewish traditions, it really suggests that the content of this dialogue is based on actual conversations with Jews. Pretty much the whole document is Justin arguing from the truths and the teachings of the Hebrew scriptures to their fulfillment in Christ. And it's something that uh, Everett Ferguson calls, quote, the fullest statement from the early church of its arguments with Judaism, close quote. So this dialogue gives us a really telling glimpse into the state of Christianity in the second century as it was finding its way and trying to work out what the new covenant entailed. And that wasn't always easy to do. For example, look at the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians and how they each thought each other should relate to the law of Moses. So in this document, Justin tells us that he considers the Jewish followers of Jesus free to keep the law of Moses if they want. And he also felt that Gentile Christians should be free to observe those Jewish customs as well, as long as they acknowledge that those were matters of, of personal conscience or preference, not requirements of salvation. But Justin tells us that many of his fellow Gentile Christians didn't take that same view. Some of them, some Gentile Christians, believed that those who kept the Mosaic law could not be saved. And then on the other hand, some Jewish believers in Jesus demanded that the Gentiles keep the law, which would be what we would call the Judaizers, and other Jewish Christians didn't believe they needed to do that. And then likewise, on the part of Gentile Christians, some insisted that Jewish believers give up the law. And others, while denying that Gentiles need to keep the law, they were apt to allow Jewish Christians to keep it. So the church was still a bit of a mess, still trying to find their way. This was over a century after Jesus, and his paradigm-shifting new covenant was still trying to be worked out by Christian believers. So here in this dialogue with Trifo, I think the best way to kind of get a sense of it is let me read a few excerpts from it so you can appreciate both the nature of the discussion and the tone of it as well. So this conversation happened early in Christianity, within about 60 years of the Apostle John's death. And I mean, I just found it fascinating as I was reading this. It felt, felt like I was eavesdropping on a conversation between a Jewish rabbi and a Christian teacher from this era. So let's, uh, let's jump in here at chapter 7. And this is where the rabbi Trifo is talking to Justin, and the rabbi says this, quote, If then you are willing to listen to me, for I have already considered you a friend, first be circumcised, then observe what ordinances have been enacted with respect to the Sabbath and the feasts and the new moons of God, and, in a word, do all things which have been written in the law, and then perhaps you shall obtain mercy from God. But Christ if he has indeed been born and exists anywhere, is unknown and does not even know himself and has no power until Elias come to anoint him and make him manifest to all. And you, having accepted a groundless report, invent a Christ for yourselves and for his sake are inconsiderately perishing. And by the way, I should mention this, this English translation of the dialogue with Trifo I'm reading is from Robertson Donaldson. So in response to what the, the rabbi just said, then Justin replies by really underscoring the continuity between Judaism and Christianity, and, and he's pointing out that they both worship one and the same God. Justin says this, quote, 
There will be no other God, O Trifo, nor was there from eternity any other existing but He who made and disposed all this universe. Nor do we think that there is one God for us and another for you, but that He alone is God who led your fathers out from Egypt with a strong hand and a high arm. Nor have we trusted in any other, for there is no other, but in Him in whom you have also trusted, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob." So here we see Justin really reaffirming the Jewish roots of the Christian faith, and then he goes on to illuminate the differences between Jews and Christians and talks a little bit about the nature of the new covenant. So Justin says this, quote, But we do not trust through Moses or through the law, for then we would do the same as yourselves. If, therefore, God proclaimed a new covenant which was to be instituted, and this for a light of the nations, we see and are persuaded that men approach God, leaving their idols and other unrighteousness, through the name of Him who was crucified, Jesus Christ. Moreover, by the works and by the attendant miracles, it is possible for all to understand that He is the new law and the new covenant and the expectation of those who, who out of every people wait for the good things of God. So we can see here that Justin's not portraying the Jews as cut off forever or rejected by God, but he's actually indicating that salvation in Jesus is available to the Jews, to everyone, including the Jews. And he goes on now to identify, I'm skipping down a little bit, uh, this would be, I think this is section or chapter 16, he's identifying where he believes the Jews went wrong, and he writes this, quote, Accordingly, these things have happened to you in fairness and justice, for you have slain the just one and his prophets before him, and now you reject those who hope in him and in him who sent him, God the Almighty and Maker of all things, cursing in your synagogues those that believe on Christ. For you have not the power to lay hands upon us on account of those who now have the mastery, but as often as you could, you did so. For after that you had crucified him, when you knew that he had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven, you not only did not repent of the wickedness which you had committed, but at that time you selected and sent out from Jerusalem chosen men through all the land to tell that the godless heresy of the Christians had sprung up, and to publish those things which all they who knew us not speak against us, so that you are the cause not only of your own unrighteousness, but in fact of that of all other men." So the case that Justin is making here is, is obviously very strong and it's critical for sure, but it also has biblical grounds. His accusation that the unbelieving Jews are culpable in the death of Christ, that finds precedent in Peter's Pentecost sermon recorded in Acts 2, uh, 14 through 41. And that's where the Apostle Peter, he's really standing up and making this big sermon in which he indicts his Jewish audience by claiming here in Acts 2.23 that they, quote, crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men, uh, even though most of the Jews that he was speaking to were likely not directly involved in Jesus' trial and execution. So likewise, Justin's scolding of Trifo, and, and by extension the Jews, for denying Christ is really echoing those strong New Testament warnings that we looked at earlier uh, in Matthew 10, uh, Mark 8, 2 Peter 2, uh, among others, about denying Christ. And another thing we notice in this passage is that Justin is revealing that the Jews of his day were cursing and even laying hands on Christians for their faith in Christ. So there was some persecution of Christians by Jews going on here in the second century. And what's really interesting is, uh, is the Jewish scholar Shay Cohen, who we've mentioned before uh, in his book, From the Maccabees to the Mishnah, he, he comments on this passage in Trifo. He says this, quote, 
There's a remarkable confluence between the Jewish view of Jesus in this passage, speaking of the dialogue with Trifo, and the Jewish view of Jesus in B. Sanhedrin 43a. And let me cut in here. Sanhedrin is, is a passage in the Talmud, which is this central text of rabbinic Judaism, and it's really the primary source of Jewish religious law and theology. So, so uh, what Cohen is showing here is that there's a confluence between what Trifo wrote and what it, the Talmud says. And he continues here, quote, which also sees... So he's saying the Talmud also sees Jesus as an idolater and deceiver, and which also attributes his execution to Jewish authorities, acting without any involvement of the Romans. So what we see here is some agreement on the Jewish side of the aisle that the Jewish authorities are culpable in the execution of Jesus. And there's also another interesting reference in this uh, Justin Martyr passage, which you may have caught if you listened to our last episode. Um, Justin's comments uh, seem to include some references to the Jewish Berkat Hamanim that we talked about last episode, which is the benediction against heretics that was instituted in the Jewish synagogues as a way to try to drive out the Jewish believers in Jesus from the synagogues. In fact, there's a theologian, W. Horbury, who notes this, quote, Trifo and his companions are told seven times in Justin's dialogue that you, the Jews, curse believers in Christ. It is noted that this happens, quote, in your synagogues, close quote. So we're getting here a look at the Jewish perception of Christians in the early years. Here we are in the mid-second century. And then in this dialogue here, in this writing by Martyr, now we have Trifo who's responding, and he's providing some further insight into the Jewish attitude towards Christians at the time. So, so here is from, let's see, what section is this? Looks like uh, 38, section 38, quote, And Trifo said, Sir, it was good for us if we obeyed our teachers, who laid down a law that we should have no intercourse with any of you, and that we should not have even any communication with you on these questions. For you utter many blasphemies, in that you seek to persuade us that this crucified man was with Moses and Aaron, and spoke to them in the pillar of the cloud. Then that he became man, was crucified, and ascended up to heaven, and comes again to earth, and ought to be worshipped. So we learn a couple things here. First of all, that the teachers were saying have nothing to do with those Christians. And second, we learn that Trifo seems to genuinely understand the gospel that he's rejecting about Jesus being crucified and ascending to heaven and all that. And so Justin responds to that by saying this, quote, Now it is not surprising that you hate us who hold these opinions and convict you of a continual hardness of heart. For indeed, Elijah, conversing with God concerning you, speaks thus, Lord, they have slain thy prophets and dig down thy altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. And God answers him, I have seven thousand men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Therefore, just as God did not inflict his anger on account of those seven thousand men, even so he has now neither yet inflicted judgment nor does inflict it, knowing that daily some of you are becoming disciples in the name of Christ and quitting the path of error. You are also receiving gifts, each as he is worthy, illuminated through the name of this Christ. So here in Justin's comments, we see a couple of things. First, he's telling us or informing us that still in the mid-2nd century, there were Jews who were coming to faith in Christ. And then secondly, he's reminding of us, uh, reminding us of our earlier examination. And back in episode two, we looked at the writings of Paul and specifically Romans chapters nine through 11, where Paul was speaking of Israel's hardening and the fact that God had saved a remnant of Israel um, who will one day 
come back to faith. And again, I just have to say on a side note here, I just find it so personally impressive how developed, despite the fact that the church was still finding its way, how developed Christian theology was so early in the process. So jumping ahead here, the Justin Martyr's continuing, and he's assuring Trifo, and here we're in, what are we in, I think 62, um, he says this to the rabbi, quote, We do not hate you Jews or those who by your means have conceived such prejudices against us, but we pray that even now all of you may repent and obtain mercy from God, the compassionate and long-suffering Father of all. So here we see, uh, and this is a reference to our biblical framework, Justin is earnestly desiring that the Jews would come to salvation in Jesus. And he says this a little later on, quote, Say no evil thing, my brothers, against him that was crucified, and treat not scornfully the stripes wherewith all may be healed, even as we are healed. For it will be well if, persuaded by the scriptures, you are circumcised from hard-heartedness. Assent, therefore, and pour no ridicule on the Son of God. Obey not the Pharisaic teachers, and scoff not at the king of Israel, as the rulers of your synagogues teach you to do after your prayers. For if he that touches those who are not pleasing to God is as one that touches the apple of God's eye, how much more so is he that touches his beloved, and that this is he has been sufficiently demonstrated." Again, this is just, to me, mind-blowing stuff. So if you caught that, Justin is referring to Zechariah 2.8, where the prophet wrote, quote, For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. This is, a, this is a passage where Zechariah is calling Israel the apple of God's eye, and he's essentially saying that harming Israel is equal to harming the most vulnerable and sensitive part of God himself. It just really shows you the depth of knowledge that Justin had of the Hebrew Scriptures. And then let me jump down to the end here. Dialogue with Trifo actually closes with Justin describing this friendly parting of the ways between the two men. He says this, quote, After this they left me, wishing me safety in my voyage and from every misfortune. And I, praying for them, said, I can wish no better thing for you, sirs, than this, that recognizing in this way that intelligence is given to every man, you may be of the same opinion as ourselves and believe that Jesus is the Christ of God. So in this early writing, Justin's using this remarkable command of Jewish scripture and Jewish theology to develop this really forceful case for Christ. And and he's openly challenging the tenets of Judaism that reject Jesus. What's notable, I think, is that while, while he's mounting this impressive argument, Justin's making no effort to distance Christianity from its Jewish roots. In fact, he's approaching the Hebrew Bible with reverence, and he's speaking highly of the Jewish prophets and the patriarchs and and drawing these numerous bold lines of connection between the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures, and Jesus as their Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. So whether or not this work records an actual conversation, we know that what Justin wants his reader to take away isn't a hatred or a persecution of the Jews. Instead, he's modeling a a biblical posture in which love and truth are held in balance. His tone throughout this writing, it's strong, it's uh, convicting, but it's not disparaging. He doesn't engage in personal attacks. But at the same time, you know, he's pulling no punches when it comes to defending the truth of the New Testament and the person of Christ. So I actually think that in many ways, dialogue with Trifo is really an ideal example of a respectful and an honest 
debate in which Christianity is defended, while at the same time, um, there's the expression of an earnest desire for the salvation of the Jewish people. Again, we looked at that in our New Testament baseline, that, that holding in tension the fact that we have to reject the parts of Judaism that reject Christ. And at the same time, we have to honor the central role of Israel and the Jews in God's story of redemption, we have to love them and earnestly desire their salvation. And in my opinion, I thought Justin did a really good job of maintaining that balance in this work. All right, so this is a good place for us to wrap it up. Uh, Lots to think about, lots to process here. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. In our next episode, we're going to take a look at two more early church writings. We're going to look at uh, On the Pasha, which is the Passover or the Easter. It's called On the Pasha by Melito. It's basically a a, sort of an Easter sermon. And then we're going to look at a work by Cyprian called Three Books of Testimonies Against Jews. And these are both really interesting and insightful early writings that give us more information as we continue our quest to understand the Jewish-Christian relations in the first three centuries of the faith. So, once again, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out DivergenceBook.com or my personal website, rlsolberg.com, for more information, and we'll catch you next time. Shalom. Shalom.